Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Author's Journey, bringing you the stories of authors in our community and their journey with the written word. I'm your host, Moni Dujeji, and I'm so thrilled to have in the studio with me today someone who is incredibly well-known in Ottawa for bringing the Japanese arts, Japanese culture into, into our world and sharing it at her location, which is Camellia House here in Ottawa. Rebecca Craig, thank you so much for coming thank in. You. Thank you so much for the invitation. And thank you so much for bringing tea of to course. start the day. Because <laughs> I know you don't go anywhere without tea. No, I mean, it's inconceivable for me to do anything almost without tea. So we'll start with some chrysanthemum tea, which is oh, seasonal to right I've, now. I've never had chrysanthemum tea before. This is oh. this will be a, a delight to have it on the first time. Well, you can see the flowers that are inside. Yes. Yeah, so there are a lot of medicinal values. I love the, the yellow color. Yes. And so everything I do is really, it's connected to seasonality. So I wouldn't want to paint waterfalls or anything like that in January. So drinking chrysanthemum tea in fall is not something I would do in the spring. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Well, obviously, you know, the Japanese culture and its traditions has influenced you a great deal to the point where we are serving tea that is appropriate for the season. Right. So how did you, how did this world, this beautiful world, enter your life? I would say the story starts, here you go, Thank you. Um, probably back around the turn of the century. One of my great uncles went and lived in Japan for 26 years. I later found out he lived just 30 minutes from where I chose to live in all of Japan. It's a very long country. Wow. And he brought back, um, with his you know multiple journeys back and forth, he brought back a little tiny tea set, very similar to this one here, except instead of silver, it had gold around the rim. And so from 18 months of age, I was playing with that, what we thought was a children's tea set, but it later turns out is an actual tea set for a tea ceremony. Is that right? Yeah. What an interesting Take synchronicity. You Thank like you. It. Thank you for sharing this with me. Mm -hmm. Yes. So um, that led me to, you know, enjoying tea my whole life, Earl Grey, afternoon teas with family. And were you playing, like, were you having like tea parties at, tea when you were a, a child? A like child. I have a picture of myself sitting on the <laughs> kitchen floor, um, turning over a, a basket yes. and putting a little white cloth on top and literally just like having a tea party with one of my oldest friends. <laughs> I can see it. So, yeah. So it's something that's been a part of my, my journey for a long time. And then going to Japan, living there for seven years, it just really helped to bring all the threads together. So Japanese tea culture really involves a lot to do with uh, the seasonality and nature and lots yes. and lots of stories because in the lesson time, we're not really allowed to take notes. We're not technically supposed to, you know, use photography. Oh, is that so right? everything is auditory. So we listen to the stories and our physical body movements are corrected by the teacher and we're engaged in this lush, beautiful, rich, visual, beautiful world full of silks like today I'm wearing some kimono silks. So Yes, because when you walked in I was expecting, you know, again in my own, you know, stereotypes, I was expecting one big full length kimono that folds in half. But True. no. True. That's more than that. I think, you know, I mean, as I'm getting older, my body is changing. Uh, you know, I've started to try and do karate to keep myself in shape a little <laughs> yeah. bit. Um, but definitely, this is um, also left over right, and I've tied it up here okay. and I've hemmed it. And then this was a sleeve, a long sleeve of a kimono. But when I'm doing painting, especially with um, with the ink, because yes. it's you know obviously black, I don't want to get it on my clothing. So to be safe for the kimono, then I like to wear a black kimono or something like that. That'll be 
fun. So when I do performance art, I do the same thing. I wear right. black kimonos. Yeah. So this is obviously not something that you just did for a little while and that you said, well, a nice experience. No, this is something that has, that is a part of who you are. And I see how much it's influenced, um, not just your writing, but also your artwork, because you're also an artist. And part of that art, you're, you've come to demonstrate for me here today. <laughs> so what is it that you have brought and what are you going to show me? Because this is also goes in your books. I think so. Yes. It's true. Um, so it's almost like I have a, a team of senseis. Senseis mean, meaning people that are on the path, right? So sen means path and se means living before. Yes. So we often think of it as teacher, but um, this little suzuri, for example, which is a grinding stone, and this ink is about 40 years old, so it lasts a long, long time. Wow. And so this was a gift from my teacher so that when I travel to Japan, because continuing to go back and study with all of my teachers is really important. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really what has influenced me most strongly is this idea of lifelong learning and this constant evolution. Yeah. So the idea that as we pass through, you know, different levels of competency, you know, we start off sort of unconscious of our own competence. We don't know <laughs> what we can or can't do. Yes. And then we proceed. So... What shall I paint? Shall I paint a chrysanthemum? Let's paint, yes, since this is, you know, we're in the season of the so chrysanthemum. chrysanthemum. Yes, I'd love to see how, how you do that. So uh, all the brushes, this is a goat hair brush, and just moistening it. We often use these palettes as a way to, and I'm left-handed, so one of the reasons that I started um, the brushwork in general is because as an English teacher in the school system, my pedagogy for McGill was failing completely. So I decided <laughs> so, okay. to put myself back into Teachers College in Japan and become the student or the undercover teacher <laughs> investigating their <laughs> traditional teaching approaches. Okay. So with my teacher, he would put a painting in front of me and I would look at it and he wouldn't necessarily paint it for me, right? I would have to kind of try and guess what he was doing mm -hmm. and imitate or mimic the art forms. So here I'm doing, um, after 20 years of doing this, I started to realize that not everybody has necessarily 20 years. Yes. And uh, <laughs> it does take quite a bit of time. Uh, I realized that if I was to paint the traditional way, which is on my knees, facing myself like this, and I started to paint, yes. you can't really see what I'm doing. No, I can't, no, exactly. No, not at all, right? So I realized I had to turn this around and so that my students could see how I was painting as wow. I was in the process of doing it. And then as that skill developed, I realized that I could paint this way, which is sort of upside down and backwards. Upside down, that's, that's really hard to do. And so when we talk about those levels of competency, so the idea of being able to talk and paint at the same time and have something that resembles, hopefully. Are you starting <laughs> to see the flower? I am starting to see it. I am seeing the flower. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I started to paint with uh, one of my teachers, uh, Debbie Danbrook, who's a wonderful shakuhachi teacher. And uh, I wanted to um, really kind of, you know, work alongside her music. So um, listening to the beat of the music, I would then start to listen to it. You know, if this rhythm or if this melody was a subject, what would it be? Okay. And then I would hear, for example, ah, oh, these long trailing notes. Oh, maybe that sounds like a waterfall or maybe it sounds like a willow branch. And, uh, and then as the years have gone on, because we've done a number of these collaborations, I started to work with another wonderful artist here in town. Um, and many of you have probably seen her in the market. Uh, her name is Ryoko Itabashi. Okay. She's a fabulous shamisen player. 
So she and I have done a number of collaborations for the Embassy of Japan most recently. We were mm -hmm. at um, the Ottawa 2017. Right. So that was a bit startling because yeah. there were about 1,200 people in the room. So <laughs> yeah. and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so then so. The, this artwork, obviously you've uh, used this and we're doing this so that uh, people can also understand that this is the kind of, the, these are the kinds of illustrations that they see in your coloring book. Because how, so how did this idea for coloring books emerge? From this, just from uh, painting for students or illustrating for students? Well, you know, it started, we were at my cottage, uh, family cottage up in the Gatineau's, and my sister-in-law, Renata Varro, she was amazing. She said, you know what, you should do coloring books. And I said, coloring books? I said, oh yeah, that adult coloring book thing. And then my nieces and nephews overheard her saying it, and then they said, yes, yes, please make us a coloring book. <laughs> and oh. I said, but who's going to want to color this? Because this is not even a flower most people know. And so I said, okay, well, I don't have my brush and my things with me today. And they said, oh no, we have a pad of paper. We have like a black marker. <laughs> I said, all right, well, let's, let's give this a go. So I just you know, brought it over and I just started sketching multiple things and gave them one and they'd scribblingly color it and the next one would come. And this went on for an entire weekend. I did no dishes, I cooked nothing. I was extremely awesome. irresponsible yes. family <laughs> member. So my nephew, Furakun, he asked me, he said, could you make me a coloring book for my birthday? Which was two weeks hence. Okay. And I was like, oh dear. So I bought a sketchbook, I went out and painted 80 original paintings into this little sketchbook. In two weeks? Into, uh, yeah. Wow. Well, it's fast, right? Yeah. When you know the subjects, it, you know, it take, I mean, it's sure. been 20 years. People ask me, how long does it take to do a painting? And I say, 100 hours of practice and then two minutes, you know, right. depending on how you want to craft the painting. So, um, so I did that when the four noble ones in 2015. And then that sort of, unleashed this forgiveness in myself to mm. just say, I'm not afraid anymore. Um, it's not my best work. It's not the perfect work, but I'm not going to wait and hold this in anymore. So it's been 20 years. I'm going to let all of this out. And so it just cascaded from there, just doing more and more coloring books, which then turned into be useful for working with my students or you know, other workshops or things like that. Yeah, I think it's very important what you say, this idea of waiting for perfection, because I think that happens when you're an artist, a visual artist, as you're showing here with your illustrations, whether you're a writer, there's always that, ten perhaps the tendency among many people to just say, I'll just wait for until I'm the perfect practitioner, until I'm the, I've reached that level of perfection. And oftentimes that level of perfection is only in your mind, mm -hmm. I've come to appreciate. Um, that it's more, I believe it's, yes, it's important to, to have a level of competency in what you're doing, uh, but not necessarily wait until perfection, because what is perfection? What is perfection? Yeah. Now, that's a very profound question. I only have, we don't have time <laughs> to explore perfection here. <laughs> but uh, that, that's the idea that you have, the idea of sharing what you yes. already know, because yes. after 20 years you know quite a bit. Yeah. yeah, and I say, you know, it's enough to open the textbook and guide somebody along the first page or the yes. next path. It doesn't have to be swallowing the entirety of whatever sure. it might be. So. Yeah. And then I think the important thing that Japanese culture has taught me is that, you know, and the, the latest book that I did, The Courageous Chrysanthemum, is paintings over the last three years, so the last three falls. Mm -hmm. So looking back at the ones I did in 2015, 16, or 17, I see in my own art this evolution. So yes. I think it encourages students to see, too, you know, the teacher is ever-evolving 
learning. The teacher is a student, the student is a teacher, that yeah. we're all, we all have something to teach and something to learn and something to share and something yeah. to give, so. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think I, I so agree with that. And this idea of not being stuck in one thing because um, the moment that you become an expert in something, it's as if that label carries you for the rest of your life. And it's yes. as if you're not able to, um, of evolving and growing in your own craft. And I think also this is, this is important for writers, for any creative person to understand is that this is what you're doing now. Yes. But that doesn't necessarily mean that this is what defines you for the rest of, uh, for the rest of your existence. Totally. Yeah? It's why I prefer the term practitioner. Oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah practitioner. I like that. So instead of teacher or student, I, I worked with my teachers in Japan and I said, you know, I don't want to say I'm teaching. I want to say I'm demonstrating. But rather than demonstrating, I say I'm sharing. I'm serving. Yeah. So serving the community the way it wants to be served and helping and sharing whatever I can in a way shifting it so that it meets the needs of the people that are doing it. So yes. if people don't want to take painting lessons, they want me to paint on their body or paint on a tray of wood or illustrate their poems in a book, I'm happy to do that. So about three years ago, I just started my Just Say Yes. Just Say Yes. <laughs> so I went to Japan and you know, they're like, do you want to eat this raw shell on the side of the tank? And I was like, Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> Do you want to drink this sake or this beer? I was like, no, but yes. <laughs> Do you want oh. to come to this bizarre, you know, concert? I was like, okay, sure. sure you know? yes. So in the same way, I think as an artist, exactly as you're saying, if I define myself as a tea ceremonialist and strictly in the worlds of that culture, you know, it would be difficult. Yeah, very powerful. Thank you so much for that. We do have to go to a quick break. Please stay tuned, everyone, as we continue our fascinating conversation with Rebecca Craig. Welcome back everyone to The Author's Journey where I'm continuing my conversation with Rebecca Craig who is very well known in our community here for bringing Japanese culture, Japanese arts uh, here through Camellia House. And I wanna talk to you a little bit about um, the culture and I wanna talk to you a little bit about how obviously it's influenced you but if there are any common themes, any common philosophies that ties all of your work together because we haven't talked about your books yet, we're going to do that because you're not only an illustrator but you're also an author as well. So tell me how um, the themes, if there are common themes that tie everything together for you. I think um, with the first two books, uh, the authorly books, it's supposed yes. to be illustrated books, it was really the theme of yin and yang teaching. So when I was living in Japan, of course, the pedagogy of the East and the West is so different. Yeah. And so I had a male teacher of painting, Tamaki Sensei, and he was very kind of strict, and but also very soft, very kind, very gentle. And my tea ceremony teacher, Mrs. Koyama, and my anyway, I've Ikebana teacher, and lots of different teachers. So that these are, are just different styles. Different of styles. What are of they? Teaching. Different so styles. Oh, okay. Their approach would be some would be very strict and so very harsh. So this is Ikebana. This is it. Could be Ikebana. So for oh, example, okay. one of my first Ikebana classes, I thought the flowers were too closed up, so I wanted to open them up. So I started peeling the flower open, and in horror, my Ikebana <laughs> teacher said stop you know and then she uttered a, <laughs> an expression I won't for your viewers but in any case um, she sort of halted my uh, violation of the flower shall I say oh, okay. <laughs> so you know others took more of a gentle approach they simply okay. let me evolve and do very uh, 
inappropriate things as time went on. And then as I gained more fluency in the culture, I learned that that was less appropriate. So, okay. yeah. so yin and yang means, yin is it the style really of teaching or is it more I the style of... I think something a little bit stronger, something a little bit softer, something right. a little bit kinder, something a little bit more direct, uh, sharper, mm -hmm. harsher. So there were times when my teacher, my painting teacher might say, you know, why do you come here? And your paintings are terrible, <laughs> in a sort of nice way. So the severity of his teaching really <laughs> wounded me. I would go home crying, right? Yeah. Um, my karate teacher is pretty intense too sometimes, you know? Um, yeah. But I started to learn, it was after I talked to somebody, I said, you know, my teachers are always bullying me. They're always like criticizing me right. and being so cruel to me. And I've been doing this for years. Like, shouldn't I be getting better? And then they said, ah, oh, you are so lucky because obviously your teachers love you. Oh. Because if they didn't, they wouldn't give you any corrections. And if they didn't care, they didn't see your possibility of improvement, they would completely neglect and ignore you. How fascinating. So, yeah, so sometimes the pinching, the yang style of teaching, is a way of testing your commitment and your resolve and really poking poking you over and over yeah. and over again. Are you going to stick with this? Are you going to carry on? Are you gonna? And if you can break through your pride, and because part of you wants to say, oh, I'm going to show you, I'm going <laughs> to yeah. stay with this. Then if you can break through that to a kind of surrender on the other side, mm -hmm. then you get to the good part of now the learning can really begin because your cup has been emptied, right? So wow. I've heard Did that. you know all this before going in? No, I really wish I had. <laughs> so being a cultural <laughs> anthropologist, I'm an unbelievably slow learner. That's <laughs> what I often say. Well. No, so one of my teachers here in Ottawa, Algonquin Medicine Man, he said, you know, your job in this life is to learn to become a master of humility. And I was like, Okay, Master mm. of Humility, that is a mastery title I could accept. So humility, that's so, interesting. So yeah. um, is it that you're looking for balance between the yin and yang? Are you coming to this place where there's harmony between these different, what these styles are teaching you so that you can yeah. express that harmony? I think there can be, it doesn't have to be a balance like this. So the balance can be, in my case, if I'm fluffy marshmallow tea princess girly, yes. then my leaning is more towards yin, but then with just a little bit of like karate sharpness, in my case, that's balance. Okay. For other people, it might be to take their strength and power, and let's say, let's imagine a samurai or warrior, and then let's have them do a little flower arranging. Got you know, it. so there's a little bit of gentleness. So there's, we see a window into their soul, that there is that presence, there is that capacity, that aspect of them that's there. So in the books, that's really part of it for me, um, the two, exploring the two teaching styles. So in the Tea Sisters in the Palace, which is yes. about the Vietnamese Royal Lotus Tea Ceremony book, yes. it's really the yin style of teaching. So okay. the two terrible little girls in the story, they look at their elder, elegant, refined, beautiful elder sisters who never give them correction, who never give them a harsh word, who simply lead through beauty. Mm -hmm. And then through that beauty that they resonate, it just leads to their awakening. Yes. And so that was really part of my experience of Japanese culture for me was, and I, I asked my teacher, I said, you know, is it true that people awaken spiritually only through pain? Because in my case, I found that we can experience that through beauty. Interesting. It's what led me to that. And Interesting. He said that's it's possible, but it's more rare. It's more rare to because to that is something that's something that I know we're, we're going to touch on as well. It's this idea of awakening through through beauty rather than awakening through suffering and pain. Now, what is it that I love that concept? By the way, I, I think yeah. that's wonderful because I agree with you. I think suffering is a path to enlightenment, to awakening, but then so is beauty. And I've never really met anyone who's really expressed that before. So tell me how you came to that. 
I think, you know, walking into a tea room, and you imagine the first encounter I had with Eiko Koyama, my tea ceremony teacher, she was standing in this doorway and she was wearing this pearl gray kimono and she was just this angel of, of elegance and grace. And she'd probably be em embarrassed for me to say that because of course teachers don't talk about me and very humble right. and this kind of thing. Right. But the cleanly, the purity of the tea room, the simplicity of a scroll, um, the whisking of the bowl, the natural hand position she had, all of those different aspects was just like every moment in being in her presence was a surprise. It was just beautiful. And so the same way I try with social media, for example, yep. I flood my social media, my Instagram or Facebook with beautiful moment, beautiful image, beautiful moment. Like there's beauty everywhere around us. We see the car and the traffic in front of us, but not the branches of the tree. We don't see the stunning array of colors, you know? It's almost yeah. distracting for me to drive because I'm, you know, oh, look at that tree, look at this tree, right? <laughs> so it's uh, that experience of really just mm -hmm. awakening through beauty. It's, it's a lens, it's a choice. It yes. really is a choice. So something shocking, an image like that, I decided to curate my mind visually to block out those kinds of influences a little bit too, just to stop hearing that dialogue and really to concentrate on seeing something beautiful and to see if that led to a shift in myself. And, and has it? Because, you I know, it is it a practice. It, it is, is a practice, practice. To, to look for the beauty, to see the beauty in also what appears to be tremendous chaos and tremendous tragedy. Um, where, is, where is the beauty and how do you find that? And it is, it's not easy. It's not an easy thing to do. And, you know, I, I look at it as, you know, what is my role and what is my place? There are other people that can protest, but yes. maybe they can't paint beautiful pictures. So other people can take care of those elements. Not to say that I sort of retire from that position of responsibility socially, but I'm going to add another lens. I'm going to add another layer. So that's how I serve as much as I can yes. in this life, right? It's just to, to offer beauty to the world however I can. I love it. So, so I love Awaken that. Through Beauty will be another book that I'll do in the future too. Okay. So just giving people tips and ideas and ways of seeing the world, working with the natural world, the elements and nature. Yeah, because it's funny that you mentioned that because that is, that's how I, I choose to also be in the world as well through the work that I'm doing and obviously my husband, you know us, that yes. it's something that, yes, it's not as if I don't know all of the, what's happening in the world, but I am choosing to focus my lens from a, from a different place to also add the beauty, to add the love, to add the consciousness into what, what, I, what I'm seeing because I have the power to do that. That's so true. I was thinking yeah. of you this morning too because oh, yes. The Tea Traveler is really about this journey That's your across other book, Canada. Right? The, right. Tea Traveler? the Tea Traveler? This is another book that we have this to talk about. Yes. about my little nephew Furakun. Furakun. Yes. Explain to me Furakun. <laughs> Short for Francesco. Yes. So if he was, his name was Japanese, it would be Furancesco, which is very long. So Furakun. Kun okay. is in a form of endearment. Yes. Um, so when I was reading your book, um, and I was thinking, you know, this morning, like you were both walking for a purpose and walking together along that path, but you were yes. also at every moment. I remember one of the scenes where you were in the rain, yes. you know, and you're dealing with nature all around you, really. So, so that that position that as I think you were nearing the end of your journey, like nature itself was really a big part of your experience. And so it guides my writing, it guides everything. You know, we're just human beings existing within the natural sphere. Yeah. And then how those two things interact, I think is really 
fascinating. That's lovely. So thank, well, thank you, you for doing that journey. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm deeply honored. So yeah. then is Furakun, your nephew, he's how old now? He's, he's nine. He just turned nine. Is yeah. he about to go on a long walk as well? Well, you know, he <laughs> said that he thought in the book he was 14. Yes. But uh, I was thinking a little bit about the power to transform people through words. And so yes. after he read the book a few times, uh, and I knew that in teaching by making somebody the main character of the book, like for yes. example in the T-Sisters are two of my actual real life good T-Sister friends, so okay. I use their names and their characters in the book. Yes. Um, but I noticed that something shifted in the way of his behavior basically. Yeah. So th he answered a question and based on how I answered in the book. Yes. So it really is possible to kind of transmute behavior and model good examples again through beauty, through, through beauty. something natural. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, as you're speaking, I can't help but be touched by the, the spirituality also because a lot of your words for me are, are um, indicative of a spiritual journey of someone who has done a lot of soul searching themselves. And you know, as we get down to the final three minutes, if you can believe, of this show, um, can you tell me how your spiritual journey has evolved um, through this practice and how you see yeah. Camellia House and what you're doing evolving? Um, really the connection to nature, the Tao, yeah. the way, the path, Buddhism, Shintoism, all of these yes. things mixed together with the shamanism and the practices that I've learned. But just sitting quietly daily in a kind of daily meditation, listening to the messages, you know, rather than asking, but listening and just being at peace um, in partnership with Matthew, obviously. His, yes. you know, his work obviously guides me very, very strongly. So we hope that Camellia House is a welcoming place for many, many years to come yes. for people to experience beauty. And it will evolve as we do, as we age, as we change. Yes. And more offerings all the time as I continue to study more and more traditions and more arts and, and yes. bring it all together for everyone to benefit from. And you know you you have such a, a vast body of work um, that you've already created. And how what, what what words would you like to leave? I guess maybe the question is better. What legacy do you want to leave with all the work that you have done so far, and how you see yourself in That's in this funny. world? Yeah. You know, I think of legacy, and I think you know I I don't. I don't need a legacy, I don't have children, but recently I was told, oh, don't burn your childhood letters and journals. You'll have nieces and nephews and great yes. nieces and nephews, yeah. and I thought, oh, that's a good point. But I think one of my teachers, um, yes. he said, you know, make it easier for those who follow you. Mm. So by creating teaching materials or books, I capture the stories and maybe in a few hundred years they become relevant because yes. that information. So I think that's maybe part of my legacy is just taking together all the information from my teachers and then sharing it forward. I've always yes. seen myself as more of a bridge, less, oh, less, less of a light, but really just bridging, bringing these two pieces together so that we can benefit from east and west and west to east, yes. both sides. And Camellia House, I know, is, is a place that um, touches many people and it's a place where you're continually expanding your offerings. And that's something that um, I, I quite appreciate about the work that you're doing. And we talked about this before, is that you're not static in your offerings. You're not static in what you're bringing forward. You're continually evolving. You're continually exploring um, yes. your craft, not only as an illustrator, but your craft as a writer as well. And that's something that is, uh, if there was to be a, a takeaway, then that that would be a powerful one. So I do I do want to thank, thank you, you so, so much. much for coming My here pleasure. and sharing your story with us. Thank you all uh, for tuning in to this episode of the Author's Journey, and we'll see you on the next one.